Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We've got a lot to discuss today. And to help us with that, we have Andrea Sachs, travel reporter, par extraordinaire for the Washington Post. Hey, Andrea, thank you so much for appearing once again on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you, as always, for my lovely introduction. That makes my week. My month. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And I, I mean it because you ask the questions that I think are on a lot of our minds, but, but we don't think to ask. Like, for example, there is a trope in every action film that should the pilots of a plane be knocked out, an average Joe with just above average smarts could probably land the darn thing. And so you actually went to professional pilots to ask them, is this true? Could anybody with maybe like a little voice in their ear land a plane? And, and what is the what is the answer? Well, first of all, I am not one of those people, but I would say that mainly everyone says no. All the pilots, all of the aviation experts say there's so many, it's so complicated. There's so many steps involved including the first one, which is opening the cockpit, which has been secured huh. 9-11. Yeah. And then right. you have to adjust your seat. You have to put your headset on. You have to remember not to keep your button, um, your finger on the button when you're speaking to the ground forces. And then really oh. important would be finding the right person on the ground to direct you to you know, figuring out speed, altitude, landing gear, flaps. There's so many steps involved. It's overwhelming. People and so the, the, the folks... Folks who are directing you towards the airport, they're not necessarily pilots, right? So they might not have the skills to walk you through this, even if you could, even if you could remember to t take your finger off the button so that you can hear and speak and all do all that. Correct. And they were saying, you know, air, air traffic control, which clearly is having some issues lately. We see all these near collisions that a lot of them, they don't have expertise as a pilot in flying. And so their main responsibility is helping you find the airport and land safely. And so they will often have to search around and call around to find a pilot or an instructor who knows that exact aircraft and can visualize kind of what you're looking at and then talk you through, right. like, you know, press that button to your left and pull that lever to your right. So that will take some time too. And in that time, you might freak out, but hopefully you won't. But, you know, there's so how long, I mean, there have been some examples of pilots or not pilots, mm -hmm. but, but passengers who have landed smaller planes. It, it means that each type of plane, depending on how big it is, has an increased level of complexity, right? Exactly. So there have been, great point, there have been two incidences that, one recently, um, where a civilian, a passenger, landed the plane, and that was in Florida, and the pilot became incapacitated. He fainted or he had heart condition. The passenger... Oh sat in the seat and then was able to put the headsets on and then was able to land the plane. It was a small Cessna. It was more simplified than these massive jets. And then there was another case with King Air. And that person had been a private plane pilot and some experience, huh. but that was a case where they had to find, like, call around on the ground and find a pilot who knew King Air. And both they did land it safely. 
And after that right. second case, I actually went to one of these little airports and I learned to fly and learned to land. And at the end of it, I said, can you remind me how to use the headset? Because I had forgotten. <laughs> and then the main thing is remember what that SOS emergency channel is, because that's what you need is to get right. the right channel, right frequency, and the right person on the ground. And my favorite factoid from this article, there was a study yeah. done <laughs> of, of two different, two different, let's say, types of people. Who who is more likely to think they actually could land the plane? Oh, it would be men. It would be men. Fifty <laughs> yeah. percent yeah. of men said, "Oh, I could do it," whereas only twenty percent of women. We're that foolish. Yep, exactly. We're like, go right ahead. Yep, you figure out the code to the door. We'll be here. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. I thought that was so interesting because I, I find that there is this dismissal of expertise in our culture right now uh, that, that a lot of folks think that they can solve pandemics and they can, you know, they know everything about foreign policy, whether or not they actually do. And I thought, you know, it kind of crystallized in this article. It's the men. It's the right. damn men. Oh, yeah. I can fix it. We don't need a plumber. I got the sink. I got the toilet. And then you end up calling the right. plumber. Yeah. yeah. To use like the McDonald's bathroom for two weeks. So right. we are going yeah. to do a follow-up. So at the end of the article, one of my experts says, you know what? Put these people to the test. Put them in a simulator. And so we're going to have a part two where we fly oh. out to University of North Dakota and they have a ton of simulators. And we're going to get regular people to try it out. And I might try it too, but I know it's not going to end well. <laughs> How great. Well, on a, a couple of episodes ago on the Fromer Travel Show, we had one of our authors on, a great guy named Sean Cudahy. And he was talking about turbulence. You had another fascinating article about the fact that airline flight attendants have come out with a demand that we get rid of the policy that allows parents to sit with children under two years old on their laps. And it has to do with turbulence, right? Mm -hmm. It does. This one was heartbreaking. This one, I was just reporting on something entirely different. And then the flight attendant, the head of the union, and I, we, I mean, we're actually crying when, you know, if I share that story, what happened in Iowa. It was heartbreaking. And they've been on this for a while, how dangerous lap children are, lap babies, because they're not strapped in. And you think of the restrictions that we have on the ground and with driving and how, you know, it has to be a specific baby seat care or um, baby seat. Type of baby seat, sure. Correct. And like in the air with the turbulence and all sorts of mishaps, babies are just loose on the lap. But... You brought up a very interesting uh, statistical fact, which is if for parents were forced to pay for a seat, to put the baby seat in and strap in their children appropriately, more parents would drive rather than fly. And because driving is exponentially more dangerous, this would lead to more baby deaths altogether. Right. Yes, that is the rationale. They did the economics of it. They did the fatality numbers of it. The American Pediatrics Academy supports that because they hmm. think that more children will be at risk because the parents can't afford to pay for a full price flight for their little one. And so they'll have to opt to drive. And then they're, it's a higher risk, as we know, because of traffic accidents. So that's kind of how they figured out that it's better to keep or it's safer for the children 
to keep them unbuckled than to risk having them be put in a car. Huh. Yeah. So uh, to me, that makes sense. I, you know, uh, of course it's terrible when there's this extreme turbulence and there is more and more turbulence happening, but I still think it's better for, for families to be able to fly. I don't know. Where do you fall on this argument? I think the third way would be airlines need to provide discounted seats for little ones. Ah, I really do. My dad was a pediatric surgeon and we always wore seatbelts. And so I just can't imagine in the air not having a little one, you know, not being a a baby in a seatbelt. And then as what I mentioned before, that there was that tragic incident in Iowa where the flight attendants, the policy was, it was in their manual to tell the parents with the babies to wrap the baby in a blanket and put them on the floor. And that was in 1989, yeah, though, right? Thirty yeah. years ago. Yeah, they're still talking yeah. about this. And wow, you know, I hate to say, it, like, I'll cry on your show, but you know, one of the babies bounced out of the plane, and the mom was looking for the baby in the cornfield, and she went to the oh, flight attendant, and she said, "I did what you told me to do." Oh. Now, you know, my child's gone. Yeah. So the flight attendant cannot forget that incident, and they don't want people to either. And they think that right. if they can afford it, to definitely pay for a seat. Well, uh, I I hope the airlines will. I, <laughs> I I don't have as much. I I don't have much. Uh, I, they won't confidence. <laughs> it's all. Fun. I don't think they will. You I don't think they will. And it's baby section, like have a little nursery in the back. With yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, it, this is an incident from 1989. Mm-hmm. This, you know, this isn't. I wonder if this that this is that common. I it, to me, it's like. I read about Amsterdam many years ago and they were they were discussing whether or not they should force cyclists in the city to wear helmets. And they did the numbers and decided that if they forced cyclists to wear helmets, which is the safer way to cycle, many people would not cycle daily. And this is a city where everybody cycles and because everybody cycles they have much better heart health. And they felt that making this regulation would hurt people's overall health and you would have more deaths in the end. So, you know, there's always these different ways to, to look at these these uh, types of situations. Right. Yeah, you definitely have to look at the bigger picture and look at what people, human nature and what they might then, their second option that they'll do to avoid whatever the new requirement would be. Right. You also had a very interesting article recently about how to get prescription drugs when you're traveling outside of the United States. And you you brought up a lot of points that I had never thought of. Now, first of all, there are, there are people who specifically travel outside the United States because drug costs can be lower. And then there's the cases where people get sick and suddenly need to get a prescription. So what are some of the rules of thumb if you need to get a prescription abroad? Well, this one came from a personal experience where I was in Morocco and I needed Cipro. And I know in the Mm. States it's prescription, but in Fez or in Morocco, it was not. And I just went to a pharmacy with a guest who spoke fluent Arabic, which I was so grateful for. And I just bought it like it were vitamins. I mean, it was amazing and I felt better immediately. And so that kind of was the seed of this idea that some, of course, caveat, don't self-medicate see a professional, but sometimes we know our bodies and we know what we need quickly. You know, we ate something that was bad or we have allergies or whatever it may be. And so the first thing would be, obviously you need to find a legitimate pharmacy 
and State Department, the embassies sometimes have listings of of these pharmacies or medical clinics. You can always feel confident about a pharmacy that's affiliated with a hospital or a healthcare center, medical clinic of that sort. Um, My expert suggested obviously go in busy areas, you know, main tourist areas. Hmm. Not you basically want to avoid black market and right and. You know, at well, can you yeah go into why you have to avoid black market? What have they found in drugs in certain countries? Oh, fentanyl. I mean, deadly, oh. deadly stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, then you won't care that you had a UTI, like you'll kind of miss the UTI <laughs> or whatever it is. So no, it's really, really dangerous. And you obviously have to look at the medication before you put anything in your mouth. Make sure- right that it is sealed to make sure that the label, it doesn't look like it was made from Kinko's. You know, it's a professional label, has the proper name. Make sure that when you look at the pill, it's not cracked, it's not discolored, it doesn't smell funny. Liquid, oh. you know, shake well and mix well. So you really don't, you need a minute to make sure you're safe when yeah. you do this. But I mean, pharmacies are great. They can be cheap. Sometimes it's easier just to do it yourself than to have to then, as a foreigner, try and figure out how to crack open their medical care system and then the bills and the waiting. And so sure, I'm a proponent of pharmacy, but you have to do it wisely because there have been a lot of cases and a lot of stories about how people are taking poisonous meds. Ooh, yeah, no. Well, as always, as I said at the start of this, you think of the questions <laughs> that really can make people's travels better. Uh, thank you so much, Andrea, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. I love being on it. I get to read a lot of travel memoirs, but few have been as moving or as beautifully written as My Family and Other Enemies' Life and Travels in Croatia's Hinterland. I'm so thrilled to have the author on with us. She is Mary Novakovic. She's also the author of Many Fromer's Guides to France. Hey, Mary, many congratulations on this wonderful book. Thank you very much, Pauline. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we got to handle the title of the book first. Why did you name it My Family and Other Enemies? One of my favorite books is My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. Uh, which is a, a classic in, in the English travel and not really travel, but, you know, the literary canon about his family moving to Crete, uh, to, to Corfu rather, in the 1930s. Huh. And, uh, and of course, the story is about my family. And it's difficult to be in certain parts of the former Yugoslavia without somebody being an enemy at some point. And, and, I, and that pun just came really quite naturally to me. And, uh, and at certain parts of the, of the, of the book, I said the whole sort of enemies are, are quite uh, quite um, up, you know, the, the the forefront of the story. Yeah. Well, in that way, this book is very different than other travel memoirs I've read. In that, often, you know, people travel and it's all light and it's all happy, but you come from a part of the world that has seen extraordinary tragedy in the last forty years, fifty years, uh, and so. A lot of the book is very meaningful, but let's 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 start at the beginning. You take us first to your visit that you took when you were about eleven. This is before war has torn apart this region. 
And what one of the things I loved about the book is you really describe so beautifully what the culture is like, what the language is like. I have to ask you about Serbian. Why is it so complicated to learn and to master? And how does it have three genders? <laughs> I wish I knew. Three, three genders and, and seven cases. It's, it's an inflected <laughs> language. It's like Latin. So any, every word will have like, you know, so many different ways of ending the word. And, and it's fiendishly complicated. And I, I still can't speak it to anything but, you know, vaguely approaching native level, even though I've been speaking it, well, there was my cradle tongue before I learned English. And, and it's really, really tough. And, uh, and then you've got the Cyrillic alphabet as well, which, funnily enough, I, I learned yeah. very quickly when I was taught it by one of my cousins during that summer. But it, so what is the third gender, though? I mean, there's male, there's female, Neuter. and then, and then how? Yeah, same thing as in German. They have the same, uh, the same three genders. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I, I don't speak German. I've never studied it, so I didn't realize that. And something in the language also kind of brings you into the culture. At one point in the book, you say you don't have a separate word for brother or sister and cousin. It's all mashed together, right? It is right? pretty much so, yes. I mean, there was you know, brat is brother and sister is sister. And you could be talking about your sestra and it could be your third cousin. We don't make that distinction between cousins and, and siblings. I mean, obviously, sometimes you have to say it is actually my, my, my birth brother, as it were. But, uh, right. but we don't call someone a second or third cousin twice removed. And I, I still don't actually understand what twice removed means. It's, it's, never, it's never sort of come up in our family. And, and, uh, and it, 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 the, whole, the whole idea of an extended family, they have that in a lot of cultures. And it's one of the things that really makes so many Slavic cultures so much more inclusive and, and, and warmer um, because everyone, yeah. you could be a, quite a distant cousin and you're instantly drawn into the family. Well, that's what you felt when you, when I was reading this. So you, at the age of, I guess, 11, you were sent to I, I, polish your Serbian and get to know your distant cousins. Can you say the name of the region? Because I'm going to, I'm going to murder it, I'm sure. Very straightforward. It's all phonetic. It's called Lika. L-I-K-A. Yes, Lika. that's it. Oh, yeah. okay. And tell us about Lika and about that summer when you were uh, just a child, but had these extraordinary experiences. Well, it was um, a complete culture shock because it was 1976 and it was still Yugoslavia in those days. And it was, um, right. Lika is, I think it's probably one of the largest regions of Croatia as Croatia is now, but probably the least populated. And even now it's still very, very, it's, it's mountainous, there are tons of tiny villages. The largest town is only six and a half thousand people. And, and I'd, I was, mm. I'd grown up in, in Ontario in a sort of average-sized city, and I was sent off there for the whole summer on my own to stay with an aunt and uncle I'd met precisely once. And, uh, but people were doing that a lot. You know, they would send the, the children off to spend time with the grandparents in the old country and that sort of thing. And it was my, it was my, turn, my turn to do that. Uh, but going to a place where it's all tiny mountain villages and very primitive plumbing and things like that, and, and I was yeah. surrounded by these huge mountains and forests and lakes and, and rivers and waterfalls and canyons. And it was completely different. I mean, for a sport city kid, I was also a little princess, I have to say. I was, I was <laughs> I'm the only girl and the youngest. So you can imagine um, what I got away with as a child. And then here I am thrown into this completely different setup. 
completely different atmosphere. And I was like, well, you you did you refused all food or all a lot of the local foods. I did. It was, even though we'd grown up with Serbian food, it was quite a different version of it. It was obviously the pure version and very seasonal. You don't have, you know, you especially in those days, you eat purely seasonal food. And I was yes, I was an absolute sport rat, and uh, and I was dreadfully homesick. And and it took mm. me a while to um, to acclimatize myself. And also the language I thought I could speak, it turns out I didn't really speak it that well. And so there was a lot of lack of communication between me and my family. But luckily what mm. happens, especially when you're a child, is that it didn't take too long for my brain to, to absorb the language and to, and to learn it. And I was thinking and dreaming in Serbian by the end of the summer. And, and my cousin mm. had taught me how to write in Cyrillic. And, and I also, most importantly, I... I I sort of got over my homesickness and my my terrible little madam ways, and completely <laughs> fell in love with with the region, um, fell in love with Lika, with the landscapes, and I love my family as well. I mean, I absolutely adore them, and, and we still see each other whenever we can. And it's it's yeah. it was one sort of the it completely opened my eyes and to a totally different world, and I haven't stopped going back since. Well, there are such delightful details that you include that bring that world to life. Like you talk about the bunch of dried herbs that your aunt had hanging on your uh, bedroom wall. And then you you find it in, uh, I think, in Sardinia uh, many times later. Can you tell about those yes, herbs? Yes, it's, um, it's called helichrysum. It's these sort of um, tiny yellow heads. And the scent is, it's so evocative. It, it sort of smells a little bit like burnt sugar, a little bit of dill and fennel. It's all these wonderful, you know, uh, smells. And uh, and I'd never come across it since then. And then I happened to be in, in Sardinia. I could smell it from the roadside. I was at a little um, uh, a farm stay uh, for lunch. And and I had to ask what it was. And she could only know the Sardinian name, not not even the Italian one. But I managed to find out. Right. And it was Elicriso in Italian. And it's called Imotel in French. Which if you go to Corsica, for example, it's absolutely everywhere in Corsica. <laughs> And then I found mm. it in other places, in other parts of France, and even in, in Britain as well. And it just instantly takes me back to that summer, and and it's such a soothing scent. And it was in the, my in the room I was I was sleeping in, and it always. And in fact, I, I I've got a club of it, which I I sort of I surreptitiously nicked from a, a, a bar in um on the Adriatic coast, and it's in my office. And I, you you put a very interesting detail that the essence of that scent, because I guess it's used in perfumes, mm. is very expensive. Yes, it is. It can be something like one and a half thousand euros um, for a liter of it. But then it's also as if you, if you when we were in, uh, went to, we were in Corsica last year and discovered it's a quite a big industry there as well. It's it's used for they, they say it has healing properties. And um, yes. lotions and creams or whatever, and uh, and there is that side of it which I I didn't really know about, and and I just it's just the scent for me that's the important thing, right? And and uh, and another surprise to me was that in this region people take what in Italy is known as a passeggiata every evening. You don't think of that evening walk. I think of that being. So Italian, but I guess it's in different parts of Europe, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yes. In fact, uh, it wasn't in. It was when I went to stay with my my dad's um, half brother in a, in a much larger town than the, the village I was mainly staying in. And yes, it was. It right. was. Or you find that you find that you, you you're in Dubrovnik, for example. And they, they call it the um, the Corazon. and and you um 
And you just gather your friends, you, you stroll through the village or you stroll, stroll through the town at the end of the day and you catch up on gossip and you sort of parade a little bit, exactly the way the Italians do. And it's a lovely way to, to, to finish the day and uh, before you then go into the evening. And it's a, that same way of sort of, sort of catching up with, with everyone and, and the gossip and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. No, it sounds, it sounds idyllic. In fact, that, that's what's so striking about the first part of the book. Uh, you 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 set up the reader to understand the different aspects of this culture and the warmth of it of it and the um, and different levels of artistry and the beautiful uh, nature sites and then the war comes and you come back to this region in the I guess the second third of the book with your mother and how has it changed? Well, I it's changed drastically. Oh, yes. <laughs> Enormously, yes. We um we we did the one the first time I'd, I'd returned uh, since 1976 was in 2004, and that was nine years after the war in both Croatia and and Bosnia had ended. And we were we were doing a walking holiday, and we started in Plitvica Lakes National Park, which is which sounds spectacular. It is absolutely stunning. It it is actually it, it's one of uh, Croatia's I think it is actually Croatia's most visited national park. And and it's huh. it's the, the thing that that Lika is is known for, although people don't really know the region of Lika, but they know Plitvica Lakes. And we were, you have all of the 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 sixteen lakes and countless waterfalls and 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 rivers and and canyons and 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 the um the the raised wooden walkways that take you right into the heart of it. And that's where all the tourists go. And then you go to the upper lakes where it's much quieter and emptier. And we had a wonderful guide who was with us on that trip, and she um, and she took us to the the more uh, the, the quieter, more tranquil parts of it, and uh, mm. and that sort of again, that's a typically it's all limestone, it's it's cast, and and it's it's um, it's so typical of the whole Lika landscape, and 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 really really lush and green as well. And and we were walking right. past houses that had been been uh, set alight in nineteen ninety five. And um, when mm. when Croatia had taken back the parts of the of the country that had been held by Serbian rebels, and it was yeah, it was right. it was very difficult because my family were Serbs, but within a, a Serbian enclave in Croatia, where we'd been there for for hundreds of what several hundred years, and and it's it's difficult knowing what 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 my lot had done, and um, right. I mean obviously it, it's it's. In 1995, in August, that's when Croatia was then doing to the Serbs what Serbs had done to Croats in 1991 and 92. Um, yeah. But it was just, you know, seeing seeing the, the devastation. And, and and what was so interesting to me is you noticed some things that didn't look like devastation, like you were in an area and there were these teeny tiny trees and you thought they were cute and your guide said, oh, no. This is the forest encroaching on what had been rural lands. Uh, you know things that you wouldn't know to realize showed how devastated this region was. Absolutely, yes, and, and it's, it's a combination of, of depopulation for several reasons. One of them, obviously, was the war and and emigration because people, you know, they'll they'll leave their village mm. and they move to the cities. It's not just young people; older people will will leave right. to be with their their, their children in, in the cities. And what had been land used to graze animals and to grow crops has become um, empty and unused. And certain parts of the world, they're talking about rewilding 
you know, certain countries that, that need to have the landscape replenished, whereas in Lika, there's a lot of it to go around. And, and it's, it's, done, it's being done naturally. And as you say, the, the forests are encroaching on land that had been used and lived in. And it's, it, right. it, it does actually add to a sense of, of poignancy and, and sadness because there is so much of it. <laughs> and, and other parts of the country yeah. and other parts of the region are very, you know, quite busy and overcrowded. But it's right. And, and it's not just seeing, seeing this in the landscapes, you also encounter this poignancy. When you meet with family members, I, I was so moved when you write about m- meeting your uncle and you just uh, casually bring out family photos of his family and and he responds with tears in his eyes. Why is that? Well, because my, my family who, um, who lived in a place called Grachatz in, in, um, in Lika uh, in, in 1995 when the, when the Croat forces retook the Serbian regions, um, they had to flee the house. And, uh, and the house was set on fire. And they could take only so many things in a, you know, within you know, half an hour, whatever period of time it was. And they had to leave yeah. everything behind. And so when I had these photos that you know, came from a roundabout way from, from my aunt who lives in Wisconsin, and she then gave them to me when I went to visit her, and I then flew them over to Belgrade where my, 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 um, my family was then living, this branch of the family was living. And, uh, and they said, we, haven't, we had to leave... Our photos behind, they all got burnt. Right. And so this was one of the first times he had seen his mm. family, his, his, his immediate yes. family, uh, photos mm. of them uh, in a long time. So what is it like visiting this region today? Is there still a lot of enmity between the Serbs and the Croatians, or has time healed some of those wounds? There's a bit of everything. Um, the, 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 it's, most of the time, there isn't really um, any any sort of ill feeling. Certain times where they've got anniversaries of uh, the end of the war and things like that, where you know feelings can be quite heightened. And unfortunately, as we have all throughout the world, uh, there's always nationalists who like to cause trouble, and you find that in, yeah. in all, in all everywhere, everywhere in the world, unfortunately, and 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 um, hard right and right wing people who who just don't want to let people have normal lives. The majority of people, yeah. they just want a quiet life. They want to have a nice life and they just want to they not forget everything. They just want to put it aside and just get on with things. At the same time, I, am, I have discovered newer things happening within Lika because it, it's, such a, it's such a vast area. It's become um, hmm. a place for a lot of um, active holidays and adventure tourism. Oh, oh. it's... it's, it's like what? What do people do in Lika Kayaking now? with all those rivers and, and, and white, white water rafting. It's a massive thing. I mean, there's so many wonderful canyons and waterfalls. And, uh, and, it's, and a lot of campsites have, have, been, um, have been set up and little, little bed and breakfasts and, and, and little apartments and villas with pools surrounded by pretty much empty countryside. If you want a, a really relaxing mm. holiday... Um, you just go and, and you can do some hiking and you can cycling and because uh, you've got more people than, than cars, really. And, uh, and a lot of it is sort of, if you take Pleat Pizza Lakes, because that really is a massive honeypot and it, it's sort of the, it, it circles all around, it radiates the tourism. It keeps on extending further and further and further as more people think, oh, let's go and have a nice holiday in the countryside. Let's, let's do some, some cycling, hiking and, and, and get 
And who tends to do this? I mean, is it is it mostly European vacationers or, or people just from that region? Or is it people from all over the world who come to Sleek? It's everyone. Liga? It's everyone. Part of it is um, the diaspora, because you, you'll find Serbs and Croats in, uh, well, north, all over North America and Australia and obviously all, all over Europe. And ones who, when they left, they moved to places like Vienna uh, or, or Germany or um, Dublin, very large Croatian contingent in Dublin. Mm. And, and they'll go back to visit the family and, and, and have a holiday there. But also when I've been there, I found a lot of uh, people from um, Denmark, from, um, from the Netherlands, from loads and loads of German tourists um, and, uh, and other people, you know, Slovakia, Slovenia, Poland. And so everyone is doing that. When I went, um, last time I was in Lika and I was by the River Una, where they had whitewater rafters, and there was a huge party from, from the UK. Because huh. everyone, yeah, wow. it's, it's a, everyone wants to find somewhere, somewhere, somewhere new to go. And it is a great yeah. place to go. And you've got these you know, small, small tourist agencies, which is that they're, 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 they're making a living for themselves in this beautiful place, and they're encouraging people to come and visit it. And, uh, and it's a way of, of keeping the economy going, really. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And if they read your book, they will understand better a little bit beyond just the natural beauty of, of what they're experiencing there, since so much has, was wiped out. What do you hope people will get out of your book? Well, from what people have told me, um, they, they don't really know the history. And if they did know the history, yeah. even more the more recent history, because it was such a, because it's so convoluted, it's so difficult to explain everything that went on because it, it, it is extremely complicated and and all yes, the you know going yes. back generations and generations of, of conflict within that within that whole region and people said oh okay yeah, I understand now I've got the context to this and uh, yeah. but the other thing that they also get is wow what a bunch of of, of warm-hearted generous people who just want to take you into their mm. homes and feed and water you and and ply you ply you with plum brandy, <laughs> and and make certain that yes. you're very very well fed, and and they just love that yes. that sense of uh, of hospitality and, and warmth. No, you definitely get that from the book. Well, it, as I said, it's a really really impressive achievement. It's a it's a fascinating look at the region, and it's a very personal one that that really brings it to life. Thank you so much, Mary, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me, Pauline. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Before I go, I just wanted to alert you to some important articles we have up on Frommers.com. One is a big warning for New Yorkers. Because New York does not currently have enough air traffic controllers. We've got about 56% of the, the amount that we need. The rest of the country has 80%, which isn't good either. But uh, because of that, the FAA has asked four of the major airlines to cut service to the city by 10% this coming summer. Now, what will that mean? We don't quite know. It could be that there are 10% fewer overall flights, but to make up the number of seats, the airlines could sub in bigger planes. Or it could mean 10% fewer flights. So 
If you live in the New York area, if you want to travel to the New York area, I highly recommend getting your tickets sooner rather than later. We are nervous that flights will become more expensive. We also have some really good articles up about different national parks that are going to need reservations this summer just to drive into them. Uh, so, So take a look at that. We have some good info about the coming massive solar eclipse that will be viewable from North America. That's in a year, but if you want to go, you're going to have to make sure you get reservations at hotels now. And we tell you where to find this eclipse, and it it should be quite, quite stunning. And we have many other things uh, that we think are helpful. One of my favorite articles is about, well, actually it's two articles about the new books that we just debuted. The brilliant Jason Cochran has his new London guide out. And for the first time, it's in full color and it is beautiful, if I do say so myself, because I picked all the photos. (laughs) And we have a new Yellowstone guide out. I think it's probably the only guide that was researched after those devastating floods changed a lot of the transportation there and and did did cause travel to Yellowstone to shift in in certain cases very dramatically so we think that's going to be a really helpful book and uh, that's it so as always thanks again for listening and to those who are traveling may i wish you a hearty bon voyage i'll see you next week No